1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC. Hi,
0: this is Stuart Murdoch from Bell and & Sebastian, and you're listening to the LSQ Podcast.
1: Jenny LSQ. Thanks for pressing play on episode number 75 of the LSQ podcast with Stuart Murdoch from Bell and & Sebastian, and it's a dream episode for me. You know, I think if I had an accounting of all of the minutes I've spent in my life so far listening to music, a huge chunk of them would be credited to Bell & Sebastian. Back in 1996, when Bell & Sebastian first started putting out albums, I just fell in love at first listen to albums like tiger milk and if you're feeling sinister and Stuart talks about some of that early stuff the early days of Bell and Sebastian and even earlier in the upcoming conversation. Bell and Sebastian recently released an awesome new album called A Bit of Previous and have started U.S. tour dates this week the week this episode comes out where this conversation begins I was asking Stuart kind of what his environment is like when he's writing and even just if he's sitting or standing at the time
0: That's interesting, do I sit that's funny i've never thought about that i I perambulate i move um i do I do tend to move i I tend to um i sometimes i dictate lyrics. I certainly do take tunes uh, I put my little headphones in i just i like to take it outside and and I do most of my best thinking first thing in the morning actually and i I'm, I'm often just stopping my bicycle or just stopping by the side of the road, leaning on a wall. And typing in lyrics, they tend to come pretty quickly. The good ones, you don't have to you don't have to ponder so much. But you asked me about if I had any overarching lyrical concerns during the making of this record, and it's funny when you get asked this stuff. I've never, I truly, I haven't thought about it because I, I do feel that each song is its own chapter in a book, and I guess you throw the chapters together. It's a little bit random so each each song definitely has a feeling, and maybe if I pick a song at random, something like uh, Prophets and Hold," I think there's there's a there's a longing in the songs there's always a there's always a longing to be with certain people, to be with people that you miss, to be with people that actually never existed, because really that you've made you've made them up in their mind, even though they they exist as people you're still what you're carrying around is a, a thing of your own imagination, fiction. And I've just, I've been writing to these people all my life. And, I, you know, just having this one-way conversation and maybe it's a, maybe it's a sign of madness.
1: And when you talk about, you know, walking in the morning and and having ideas occur that, you know, either right away, they're kind of like, oh, that's a good one or not. Are they accompanied by a melody or a hint of a musical idea at that point? Like when you're thinking of words and how much is there a fusion of their arrival?
0: Yes, absolutely. I would never write words for a song unless I had the tune going. To me, they go together. The songs, there's a... Obviously, there's a lyricism about the words and that rides on the songs. So you wouldn't you wouldn't get that if you didn't have the music in mind. I'm not a poet. I, I don't you know. I I don't just sit down and write stuff. It doesn't it doesn't amuse me so much. It doesn't uh, you know. I, I don't like that so much. I like to have a melody and almost like for the words to be traveling on a on a roller coaster on top of it.
1: I'm curious about your relationship with words and sort of how you have such ready access to so many words that you could match them to the melodies in that way you've described. Like when when did you first begin to
0: be interested in words? Well, I can only I can only almost trace it back. If you're talking about me writing, then then it has to just go back to the the first songs that I started writing in the early early 90s and it wasn't it was Quite a almost like a prosaic moment, but that was to that was to blossom into everything that I did afterwards. I remember uh, sitting down for the first time at the piano, thinking about a person that I just met, thinking that I wanted to say something to them and about them, and suddenly realizing that I could just I could play a chord at the same time and and that's that's when it started that's when i Played the chord, thought of the musical phrase, and said something about them, and and that's and it never changed from that point onwards.
1: So before that, as a as a kid, you know, were were, did you have creative inklings? What were the things as like an actual child? Because you're already an adult by the by the time you're having that moment you're describing. What were the feelings as a child that you can connect with what you ended up doing?
0: I don't think I was I wasn't super creative. I wasn't one of those. You know how sometimes you either your own kid, well, more rarely your own kid, but the, you see on Facebook, you'll see a picture or something that your friend's kid has created. They're six years old, and you're like, whoa, that's <laughs> original. That's amazing. You know, that's, and you think back to what you were doing when you were six years old and you were throwing crisp bags full of water on Fiona from the next class and, uh, you know, just doing boy stuff. Uh, I wasn't, I was never, super creative. I liked what I liked with a passion. I liked certain books, certain TV shows, certain movies. And I loved my music. You know, and we we didn't have so many options back then. You either goofed around, you went off and read a book like your mum wanted you to, or you went outside and, and and played football or played in the woods. And And it would be amazing to say, you know, music was always an option, but there wasn't the, we didn't have the facility to to play music. There was the radio, but your mum and dad controlled the radio. <laughs> and there was one TV programme you know, once a week called Top of the Pops. And then there was the charts on a Sunday night that you we tuned into with my sister. So music was was rare as well. And we, we hung off it and we thought about it. And we I mean, we used to talk, we used to gather around in the playground talking about the new chart entries, and this is when we were maybe nine and ten years old, uh, talking about Blondie and Queen and David Bowie. Which, when you think back on it, is is kind of fun. I'd love to have a I'd love to have a recording of of some of those funny conversations. And
1: sometimes I think about accidentally having
0: like acquired
1: a cooler record when I was a kid than I could possibly earn credit for now. You know, like the first forty five I bought was, uh, with, you know, with my mom, gave, handed me a dollar and then I handed that dollar to, <laughs> to the seller at the store was The Tide is High by Blondie, which, you know, was just a huge hit on the radio when I was a little kid. And I didn't, I mean, now I'm just like, yeah, Blondie, The Tide is High, that was my first
0: record I chose. So, you know, accidentally cool. <laughs> Very cool. Do you know that actually, that record started a big debate in P6, Amongst the you know the ten and eleven year olds in in in, in my school because somebody Alan Smeaton came into class and went Blondie have gone disco and somebody somebody said I'm not sure if it's disco maybe it's more like reggae or something it's not disco there was a debate <laughs> uh, but but adds to the but also adds to the quality there was something because we were used to we were used to Blondie being kind of punky punky tuneful you know power chords and and this was more laid back so. We were trying to decide whether they had betrayed us. (laughs) It's so interesting, though, how the difference of just a couple of years,
1: you know, can make on what your vantage point is on what an artist is doing or what they should be doing. And, you know, for an artist such as yourself continuing to make music, and I'm sure you probably noticed this, you're like, oh, different generations of our fans engage with it from a different place, or they heard it in a different context and therefore don't have any of the baggage of x y or z you know which probably is pretty freeing when you go into making a record you know i even think about like going to see weezer at some point in more recent years and you know all of the people freaking out over some of the newer songs really enthusiastic and knowing all the words and i'm like it makes me so happy as a a fan of fans it makes me makes me very happy
0: absolutely and can you imagine how happy it makes us when we get a, a, a touch of that. When that happens, it's so, it's really nice. Um, we played a festival in, in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. It was, it was so fun. Just a few years ago, my friend was in, my friend Heather was in the audience and we played an old song from the If You're Feeling Sinister record. It's called Like Dylan in the Movies. And there was two kids, maybe like 14, 15 years old, like in front of her, standing in front of her and they they got really excited and 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 she was like i know this one i know this one you know it's like it's by someone you know it's by and the other girl was like i think these guys maybe wrote this one i think <laughs> you know and they had this whole debate while the song was going on which is such an an unexpected perspective you know obviously they've been born long after the song was conceived and so of course their perspective is different but it was I, you know, it's kind of them to give us the the time of day.
1: I mean, I, I'm also curious, like you've got kids and they must hear music that they like better than some other music. I wonder if you your observations of them and their interactions with music must be a source of new information for you as a music maker, right? Where you're like, what is it that kids instinctively are drawn to in music?
0: Well, I'm not sure we're going to get a great perspective from my kids so they're five and eight. And, and as I said before, other people's kids on Facebook seem to be so much more advanced. But my guys, um, the eight-year-old, really likes one song. And that is, um, it's a song called Believer by Imagine Dragons. Great fucking tune. <laughs> <laughs> so he like, and when we're in the car, he just what, he wants to hear it looped um, loud. So he likes that. The younger one, hates music. At least he's at a stage where he's starting to find his own voice and his own voice is just to blow a raspberry at everything. Um, Because I'm always singing around him, he doesn't like me singing now. He bans me from singing. Sometimes he forgets. But um, he used to love the tune. His tune was the, the tune from Ghostbusters, was the theme from Ghostbusters. But we tried. I mean, we tried. I used to play him... Um, for some reason, every night I used to play him the the Blue Danube Waltz. You know, it's a really nice piece. It, it goes on for a while while he was going to bed, and you know, when he was just like a year, a year old, a year and a half, he started singing that, and he's caught. So I was very, I was very chuffed to be able to report to, to Granny that that he was into classical music.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We talked earlier about sitting down and having that moment where you realize like, oh, the words and the music kind of come together. And, but that you hadn't really been especially interested in writing, you know, or or music as a, as a pursuit before that. But did you feel confident about it immediately? Like I, I, when you sat down and you started playing, like, did it make sense to you that this was a, a whole new thing you'd you'd begun to do, you know, the context for now. Oh, well, I write songs
0: now. um, That moment I described when I wrote the first song, it's pretty much exactly as you said, I've realized this was something I could do. And at that point, that was pretty much the low point in my life up to this point. I was looking for something that I could do. I didn't have anything else because I'd over the year and a half before, my health had got really poor, and I'd had to—I had to give up everything. And I was actually back at my parents' house, and I, I was very limited. It was like lockdown, except it was to do with energy. I, I couldn't—I really—I had only had limited energy uh, during the day. So when I got this opportunity, when I realised that I could write a song, not only could I say how I was feeling and how I, I how I felt about other people and how I felt about things in the past. But I realized this was something constructive that I could build. So I held on to this thing with a drowning a drowning person's grip and just waited for the next idea to come along.
1: And how long did you have to wait approximately? I mean did it just start flooding
0: in or well it was it was really slow. The process for me of writing a song at the start, this is probably about 1991, 92 it was Yeah, it was glacial. Uh, Just not having done it before, uh, piecing things slowly together, piecing chords together, looking for the right words. Yeah, there was a, if I look back on it now, it was a little bit painful. But, you know, I I kept at it because I loved being able to write a song title in my diary. That felt like an achievement, something that I made, something I stood for, putting yourself into something. So it might take a, it, I, I might actually be working on a song for a whole month and then another thing would come up.
1: And, you know, how long before it started to feel like something that you could make into something, you know, as, as opposed to it just being a need and an outlet?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess my apprenticeship was tortuous. I mean, so this was 19, maybe it started in 92 and I didn't meet any of what was to become Bell and Spass until the end of 95 because this whole time as well, I was so limited with my energy. That was, it dominated, it really dominated my life. In fact, I started, um, you know, I have been writing a book about this period between sort of 91 and 93 and, uh, you know, sort of going back there. There was just really nothing, nothing going on. Just, you know, I had a, a best friend who was also ill and, and we supported each other. And I wrote songs for the sake of writing songs and sometimes I performed them to her or maybe a friend and with kind of lukewarm okay that's nice you know well done (laughs) and uh, so it wasn't until years later that I started creeping out and like trying to you know sing a song in a pub getting up in a pub to sing one of my songs yeah
1: Yeah. Let's stay there for a second because I mean, did you physically feel better when you start, when you started writing songs? Did you notice and did it affect your health? Which, which of course was such a dominant factor in your, in your life at that point.
0: I think it definitely, there's no doubt that it helped my mental health. I mean, my mental health was in sad shape, but if I didn't have the songs, then it would have been in sadder shape. But I think I, what I came to find out was that as I went along, the challenge of performing and also the ability to meet people through music and put things together was definitely stimulating. It's, it's what I wanted more than anything, and um, um, so that was that was so positive. I mean, I struggled to keep up with people even as the years went on. I was still struggling. I always had to disappear. There were people would be wondering if I was kidding them around, you know, wasting their time, but you know, eventually, when the when the band got together properly, um, and I was holding just holding on by my fingertips to keep up with them, but it still it dragged me along. It it did breathe new air into me.
1: You referred to the earliest moments of actually playing your songs in public or singing them for anyone. Tell me a bit about sort
0: of the, yeah, what you remember about your first performance. Well, depends. You know, I did perform in front of people when I was younger. I mean, I was musical when I was younger, but never with my own uh, song. It's actually only now sometimes when I look back to realize how much music we were surrounded with, how much music I was surrounded with, a West Coast of Scotland upbringing. I was quite lucky because my my family were quite musical in roundabout ways. And uh, so I was, you know, I did learn the piano from an early age and i picked up the trumpet at some point i was always singing in choirs and my grand she conducted a the choir the socialist sunday school choir uh, my uncle did too and then when the families when the families got together it would always end up with a big sing song around around the piano so there's, you know there's mu- there was music everywhere and one of the things that was probably really valuable looking back was we had music festivals i don't know if you have do you have that in the states I guess it, not like a rock and roll festival. We, what it would be is maybe a more sort of European thing where in the town hall, they would host a musical competition. It's quite like, the, it sounds like the, something like the Sunday, uh, the, the Sound of Music is singing Family Von trap. So it was quite a big setting in the town hall. And they would, they would have, it would be two or three weeks worth of all sorts of music and mostly from kids, mostly from, you know, up to the age of 18, 19 And we would parade in with our trumpets. There would be brass band competition. There would be orchestra. There would be solo piano, solo singing, uh, all sorts. And I entered on, I I was shoved in there on all these kind of levels. The most demanding was solo piano to, you know, to go up on the stage and and play a grand piano with people in the auditorium and uh, being, you know, 10 or 11 years old. It certainly taught you something. It was an experience you'll never forget. And if you get, if you get through that, that can, that can really set you up.
1: So when you, so then as an adult, when you were starting to perform your own songs, you, you had this foundation of, of knowing like what a, you know, all the spotlights on you, you're at the piano, you're at the festival and it's the adult version of that beginning to form. And there's more on the line when it's your own song, right? I'm I'm guessing because the self-expression is so, so it's so much more vulnerable.
0: Well, it was so, so different. And now even comparing the two experiences now, I mean, I was, I sort of like, I'm still a broken person, to be quite frank with you. By the time I first went into a a pub and they had those, what they call an open mic, where you put your name down at the start of the evening and you waited your turn. And songwriter after songwriter got up and showed off their licks and their tunes. And technically everybody was better than me. I knew it, you know, um, I was fumbling and, uh, and you know, lacking sort of energy and all that sort of stuff. But I was so determined to do it. I, the, the, I was a- absolutely determined because I didn't have anything else. I had nothing else going for me. And I did spend, those you know, those formative years trying and, and failing and what other people would say making a fool of myself you know, getting up and because uh, I couldn't play the guitar at that point. I remember them having to move this piano out and, and the piano was kind of out of tune and I couldn't see the audience because it was behind the piano and they couldn't really hear me above the side of the piano. So, <laughs> yeah.
1: A lot of admin for a show. A yeah, <laughs> But if, you know, would we recognize the kernels, the seeds of, what bell and sebastian sounded like at the beginning or you know w- w- would it be recognizable like okay yeah the the seeds of what bell and sebastian first sounded like were there even in those
0: early shows maybe like if you fast forward you know a, a couple of years on i i started to there was some point and this was me I, was, I had gotten with various people by this point and they had they had tried out with me and then they had left me they'd realized that i was too flimsy or the music was too delicate you know it was a different kind of music that the people in Glasgow were kind of into it was more at that time it was a real sort of 60 well a kind of quite up 60s and 70s pop sound that was going around you know so my music was was a little bit more delicate but I did eventually get enough songs together that I would go down to a place called the 13th Note and and funnily enough, there was a, a chap called Alex Capranos. We know him. Yeah, Alex. So Alex was the, at that point, he was the uh, the host of the evenings at the 13th note. Um, and he did that for quite a while. It's a real labor of love. And he sort of gave me gentle encouragement because nobody really, you know, nobody gave you any. Glasgow's quite a tough city. And nobody was really encouraging me. I was just keep going myself. but he, because I'd seen him around and he, you know he's with things in common, he said to me, "Look, anytime you want to play, you, you just come down, come down and, and play. you know we'll give you a slot, do your thing." And so I, I did that a, a few times. I brought a I was singing in a church choir at the time that that was a, a thing as well that was I guess that was helping with my voice. I used to bring one of the guys from the church choir down who played a bit of flute. And so, and me on guitar, and that—that that was a we'd play a six-song set, or I'd borrow another person, I'd borrow a, a a trumpet player, and so I'd build. You know, I was building this thing slowly up, and I was writing this by maybe ninety four, ninety five. As so writing, a switch came on, and I started writing better songs. There's no doubt about that. I think probably I remember writing a song called "Dog on Wheels," which. I probably wrote that maybe at the start of 1995. And then quickly after that, I wrote a song called The State I'm In. And I wrote a song called Lord Antony. Um, sleep the clock around. I just suddenly, I, it suddenly started flowing. And I, I realized things were getting a bit better. And that that enabled me to to have a bit more confidence.
1: Yeah, you. Fit, it sounds like you're saying you felt it while it was happening. You knew, like, okay, this. I'm, I'm on to something here. I've crapped some kind of a code.
0: Absolutely. And there was specifically, there was a moment when I'd been in my favorite cafe, which I practically lived in, the Grosvenor Cafe. And I started getting the idea for the song, The State I'm In. And so... I started you know writing the word I had a little tune, so I took it outside. it was too noisy in the cafe. I started writing it down, and the words started to flow in a way that um that like that I was describing at the start of our discussion it started coming easily and it started being it was writing on top of the tune, and I didn't have to ponder the words they just flowed and actually i didn't i I kind of didn't know where the ideas were coming from. I sort of didn't know what I was saying you know if you look back at it afterwards i I can see who I'm talking about, what feelings I'm trying to talk about, but it all tumbled out.
1: Yeah, that's amazing, that kind of flow. And I wonder if there's anything else that you have experienced or have made into a thing you do on purpose that evokes a similar feeling. Like, is that, you know, the stoke or something? I feel like Paul from Interpol, when I talked to him, he compared it like the only thing he could compare it to is like surfing or something, you know, sort of like he's good enough at surfing that he can like get a wave and feel uh, something that approximates the flow of like when he's onto a good song or something. Is there anything that you, any other sort of practice that you have that reminds you of that feeling?
0: That's a good question. That is a good question. I mean, I'd like to think that I was, I was playing pretty good football, still in my my thirties and early forties. But uh, I think the guys in the team might question whether my comp my, <laughs> my competence was quite the same.
1: I was remembering recently that back in the early days of Bell and Sebastian, it was very mysterious who were Bell and Sebastian. You know, I was already working in music media at the time, and you know, you would always get the bio and the photo, and that Bell and Sebastian was a no one knows exact until you started to come to the US and play shows. And it's like this is Bell and Sebastian. You retained a sense of mystery about the personnel of the band, and it wasn't like your typical headshot of band photo when there was a new bell and sebastian thing and i'm just intrigued about kind of what the philosophy was there or if it was or if it was just sort of i don't know insecurity kind of 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 youth um i i thought it, i continue to think it was a very cool thing and i want history to
0: record that <laughs> that was a moment i mean do you know somebody challenged me on this the other day or at least it hit me with a perspective they said to them there was a very specific first period of the band that lasted. Uh, that ran from 1996 to start until about 2000, and then and then the band started playing out, and it became a you know like a different thing. We could more like a regular band. We could see them. We publicized our records. We did certain things. And he was sort of he was sort of suggesting you know in those early days that that we kind of created Bell and Sebastian Land. <laughs> you know he was also in America this chap and and from his perspective. There was something serious going on in Scotland and nobody went to Scotland and they didn't know what we looked like and all these tunes kept coming out. And and then, of course, we almost like broke the spell. And that's been, this, in, this, in a sense, the spell has been broken for the past 20 years uh, since we've been, you know, working working in the band. But I, w- I wouldn't change any of that. The important thing to understand, and please believe me, nothing was planned. Um, I think if anything had been planned, it wouldn't have lasted, or it would have. You would have seen through it. We were completely engaged in what we were doing. We loved what we were doing. I mean, I was. This was the thrill of my life to go from the lowest point to suddenly having this opportunity to having your dream happen. But then it turning into something that you could never expect as well, even because it was seven or eight people, and we had this beautiful musical adventure, honeymoon period that lasted for, from 96 through 99, where we were, you know, based in Glasgow. We could we could get away with making records and then maybe, you know, having fun, making video, have a little project, go and take some pictures and then make another record. Because back in 96, 97, records were still for sale. We made enough uh, money for the record company that we could just keep on doing what we were doing. Even though they begged us, to do promotion. They begged us to go on TV. They begged us to do to, to a tour, for God's sake. But we just, we were so engaged in making the music and finding our feet. Um, you know, the, the Beatles might have gone to Hamburg and become the Beatles in, you know, the two or three years, gigging twice a, a night and taking speed. Bell and Sebastian met in January and made our first LP in March. We made our second LP. Uh, in July, which was out by October. And by that point, everybody in every record company in Britain was trying to sign us. And so this was, uh, this was maybe you can see, and there was some young people in the group that didn't even know if they wanted to be in a group. And I I realized that this was quite a fragile thing that I had created or that had come together. And I was protecting it. I was protecting it from the, the craziness uh, I realized it was going, you know, it was going to fall apart, and I didn't want that to happen.
1: Right, but it didn't fall
0: apart. No, it didn't, and and that was, I think, it was partly through the efforts of the older ones, like Stevie and Richard, and the group being conciliatory. You know, having wiser heads and just, you know, saying, "Okay, it's all right to do this a different way."
1: Well, Stuart, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up, and and thank you so much for doing
0: this. Thank you so much, Jenny. It's been it's been really fun. It's been a good hour of. Uh, psychoanalysis <laughs> well that's one from the
1: LSQ bucket list for sure thank you Stuart Murdoch for your time and for that lovely conversation Bell and Sebastian are on tour right now you can get tickets at bellandsebastian.com and that does bring us about to the end of episode 75 the next episode in a few weeks is with the awesome Kate Lebon. and I've also got upcoming episodes with Jelani Arye and the legendary Johnny Marr if you weren't already subscribing, I hope this episode has persuaded you to do so. Also, you can reach me on Twitter when you've got questions or feedback at JennyLSQ.